Thank you very much for attending our course today. We're the first of the uh, AUA Summer School. Uh, we're glad to have you here. Um, and hopefully it'll be an interesting experience. Um, again, everything that's going to be in this course are, is located in the AUA guidelines. So a, a tremendous resource for everyone is the uh, guideline statements themselves. All right, I happen to have an outstanding faculty with me. We've done this course now for four or five years um, and uh, we've been updating it. So hopefully if you need some of the older information, we have abbreviated this course to fit the, the timeline of the AUA Summer School, but there is more information from prior courses there may be more information actually in the handouts because we had the full presentation in the handouts, which we've abbreviated for the limitations of this course. Uh, my faculty, uh, Dr. Gina Simos from University of Alabama, he was actually the chair of the uh, Surgical Management of Stone Guidelines. Uh, Dr. John Liskey, who's a specialist in kidney stone disease at the Mayo Clinic, and Brian Matlaga, who's also the vice chair of the uh, Surgical Management of Stone Guidelines uh, Committee, uh, and is at Johns Hopkins University and also specializes in kidney stones. I'm going to start uh, with the introduction to this course and then go through a couple of cases uh, that represent some of the guidelines. Obviously, not all of the guidelines will be represented within this uh, course, uh, but we hopefully, hopefully with this, we're going to get a good overview of what's going on. These are my disclosures, and these are disclosures for each of us are also located on the AUA website. The guidelines were based on an index patient a non-pregnant adult greater than or equal to 18 years of age, or they we will have one pregnancy case on this uh, on this course as well, was still not thought to be uric acid or cysteine with a normal contralateral kidney, normal renal coagulation and platelet function, normal renal position, intact lower urinary tract without ectopic ureters, no evidence of sepsis, and no anatomic or functional obstruction distal to the stones. So this is the index patient that the majority of the guidelines are based on. And then there are other topics that come off the guideline within these guidelines that tell you how to manage or hopefully provide some advice on how to manage some of these more complex scenarios. Uh, case one, it's a 50-year-old gentleman with a who presented with intermittent, dull, non-radiating left flank pain. He has no evidence of hematuria or dysuria, and he has no history of urinary tract infections. His first stone event was at age 33. He had right shockwave lithotripsy twice. He's um, had spontaneously passed stones twice as well, but his stone analysis is not known to him. He has had no metabolic evaluation in the past, and we will focus on metabolic evaluations later on with Dr. Liskey. So what's their imaging study of choice? There are many different imaging studies that are out there, and obviously there's different ones that we will get in different settings, but this choice is basically limited to KUB, IVP, which has become much more limited nowadays, ultrasound, renal ultrasound plus KUB, which offers more information than ultrasound alone, and then low-dose CT scan. This is our patient's low-dose CT scan. You can see that they have a stone located in the lower pole region of a fairly good size. So how do we evaluate the symptomatic kidney stone patient? And this has changed slowly, slowly over the course of time. Uh, and, see, and shown in the most recent guidelines. So CT scan remains the foundation imaging study, strong recommendation over the evidence level grade is C. Non-contrast CT scan should be performed prior to any percutaneous nephrolithotomy. It's gonna identify the stone burden and distribution, the collecting system anatomy, position of perirenal structures and relevant anatomic variants. It may be able to predict operative outcomes and in some instances, stone composition as well based on the density of the stones. We have recommended the low-dose protocol uh, for the majority of patients having uh, CT scans because this allows excellent differentiation of calculi from surrounding tissues, as well as um, minimizing radiation exposure. 
So low-dose CT, there's been great progress in reducing radiation dose for stone protocols, especially in non-obese patients. It has high sensitivity and high specificity, though it can miss small one to two millimeter stones sometimes in the ureter region and in within the kidneys, uh, which is something to keep in mind because the sensitivity is probably approaching 95 to 98% rather than the 98 to 99% of the standard CT scan. But how often are centers actually using low-dose CT scans? A great paper came out about five years ago, six years ago, that showed that we were that radiation dosing for index renal pro, index of renal colic protocol CTs used in the U.S. were only two percent of the studies in the U.S. at that point in time. And we're hoping that that has increased uh, since then. If you use in less than six millisieverts on the CT scans, only ten percent of the institutes at that point of time were using low dose CT. There's tremendous institutional variability, and I, I, I greatly encourage you to go to your radiologist and install a low-dose protocol specifically for stone patients, pediatric patients, and for pregnant patients uh, to make sure that they're getting as minimal radiation exposure as possible, because we do know from studies that stone patients obviously have multiple CT scans done in their lifetime, and we want to lim limit their risk of radiation exposure. So this patient, you can obtain a tremendous amount of information from the CT scan besides just the size and location of the stone. Two of the key tenets of the guidelines is that size and location of the stone predominantly guide you as far as what treatment options are best available to you from shockwave lithotripsy to radioscopy to percutaneous nephrolithotomy. So from this, from this CT scan, you can see there's a, the skin to stone distance can be calculated. And you can also calculate the Hounsfield units by using the little pixels within the CT scan uh, to figure out the stone density, which will help guide treatment as well. So in general, and this is for all stones, and then specifically seats and stones that are less than or equal to 10 millimeters in the lower pole region, CT imaging parameters help you select which is the best treatment option. So for ultrasound, for shockwave lithotripsy and for ureteroscopy, quite often you can help make the treatment uh, option um, that would be best available to the patient by measuring the skin to stone distance. If the skin to stone distance is less than nine to 10 centimeters for lower pole stone shockwave lithotripsy seems to be a reasonable option. When it starts getting greater than nine to 10 centimeters, ureteroscopy is the better treatment option. Similarly, when the stone attenuation is much more dense, Hounsfield units greater than 900 to 1,000, ureteroscopy tends to be the better treatment approach. And when it seems to be less dense, shockwave lithotripsy seems to, seems to increase in its success rates to approach toward ureteroscopy. But we know that endoscopic approaches are probably much greater, uh, which much greater success. When you get to greater than 10 millimeter stones, typically the treatment options tend to lean more toward ureteroscopy and percutaneous nephrolithotomy. And this is a judgment call based on the density of the stone, the burden of the stone, and the location and the anatomy of the kidney. Case two is a 69-year-old woman with a left upper pole seven millimeter renal stone. She's asymptomatic. She has a history of hypertension and a history of kidney stones eight years ago and had successful shockwave lithotripsy. So options that were proposed to her were, or posed to her were observation, shockwave lithotripsy, and ureteroscopy. And obviously the judgment needs to be made based on uh, whether she wants to electively treat the stone before she gets to a point of, uh, of symptoms or whether she'd rather observe the patient. So for asymptomatic non-obstructing kidney stones, uh, the recommendation is the clinician may offer active surveillance. They may counsel patients of risk of stone growth, passage, and pain. They would undergo serial imaging, um, dietary modifications, and potentially medical therapy to prevent stone growth. And in this patient who's had symptomatic stones before, or has had stone intervention before, and this is a recurrent stone, medical therapy and dietary modifications would be critical for preventing stone progression. 
for symptomatic non-obstructing calosteal stones without any other obvious etiology for pain. So this patient is asymptomatic, but quite often patients present with vague pain that may be secondary to the stone. For these patients, clinicians may offer stone treatment as well. This is controversial to some degree in the sense that the stone may not be the source of their pain. So the patients first should be evaluated for other sources of the pain as well. And they must be informed that the pain may not be may not improve or resolve following stone treatment. That doesn't necessarily mean that they shouldn't undergo stone treatment. It just may not get rid of the reason that they're coming in for evaluation. So for case two, this patient for opted for shockwave lithotripsy, which again is a very reasonable option based on size and location of the stone, up to two centimeter stones can be treated with shockwave lithotripsy and or ureteroscopy. And there are new movements of uh, percutaneous nephrolithotomy, especially mini PCNL, which are coming to fruition, which may be a very reasonable treatment approach for stones that are above one to one and a half centimeters within the kidney. At the time of the guideline, uh, uh, at the guideline committee's uh, um, uh, written report, for what would be the best treatment options. Mini PCNL was fairly new and there was not there was limited literature. However, as the literature increases, this may become more prevalent in the guideline statements as well. So she underwent follow-up follow imaging with ultrasound and then CT scan three weeks later, which showed a left proximal ureteral stone five millimeters in size with moderate hydronephrosis, as seen on the CT scan here. Her creatinine at that time was 1.09, no fevers, minimal pain. What's her next option? So she could do observation, observation plus medical expulsion therapy. Medical expulsion therapy may have a limited role in proximal ureteral stones, uh, which Dr. Simos will go into later. Stent placement, shockwave lithotripsy, and ureteroscopy. This patient opted for shockwave lithotripsy by their primary urologist. Follow-up CT, uh, oh no, this patient had the shockwave lithotripsy and this time decided to go through ureteroscopy. She underwent an uncomplicated left ureteroscopy and stent removal one week postoperatively. The plan was for follow-up in one year following this patient, following that treatment. Um, the op report showed that they used a 1214 ureteral access sheath, used a laser, extracted the stone, extracted the fragments uh, with a basket, and was visually stone-free at the end of the procedure and placed a stent, and the stone was calcium oxide monohydrate. So what's the what are the recommendations for imaging following ureteroscopy? So based on the limited literature that's out there, and there are several studies that show whether we should image a patient or not, and the AOA put in a best practice statement um, based on imaging following treatment of stones as well, there is a small rate of, of uh, silent obstruction that occurs after intervention, most commonly after patients that have a complicated ureteroscopy, meaning a perforation, an impacted stone, something complex about the case. But there are patients that have had an uncomplicated ureteroscopy that still develop silent obstruction at a much lower rate. So Dr. Pearl's group out of, uh, and uh, Lotan's group out of UT Southwestern looked at silent obstruction, whether there's cost effectiveness for routine imaging after ureteroscopy, and they used a decision tree cost model. And they were able to show that even though routine post-op imaging costs a little bit more than selective imaging for patients that uh, had symptoms, so these patients that did not have any pain underwent, would undergo imaging as well, they concluded that this small increased cost would prevent renal loss and its attendant comorbidities of chronic kidney disease end-stage renal disease and cardiovascular disease that can occur from, um, from kidney disease. And that justified the additional model costs, uh, mod modest costs. There's a great study that came out of University of Washington a couple of years ago that shows that even though these best practice statements are recommending uh, imaging, quite often urologists are not obtaining imaging following intervention. And if they are obtaining imaging, they're quite often obtaining a KUB x-ray, which would not show us enough information uh, that we're looking for, which we really, what we're really looking for is signs of obstruction and persistent obstruction and stricture disease that may lead to loss of kidney function besides just stone free rate. 
So this case, uncomplicated left ureteroscopy, planned for follow-up in a year. Um, three months after her ureteroscopy, she presented to her primary care physician with adult intermittent right-sided abdominal pain, completely different than the slide that she in was intervened upon. And she was incidentally found on an ultrasound to have left moderate to severe hydronephrosis, no, no pathology on the right side. So a CT scan was ordered by their primary care physician. This CT scan shows no stones within the kidney, but there was moderate to severe left hydronephrosis down to the proximal ureter. The patient again was asymptomatic on this side and her creatinine was now 1.6. So what are her options? Observation, stent placement, nephrostomy tube placement, and ureteroscopy. This outside urologist opts initially for left retrograde pylogram and left stent placement. As you can see on the retrograde pylogram, contrast goes up the ureter. They had dealt with some sort of extravasation down here, but these films were given to us much later. Um, and you can see they, they think that they adequately place the stent up into the collecting system. The stent goes up toward the kidney, but there's de some degree of extravasation occurring in this region as well. Undergoes left ureteral stent placement to relieve the obstruction, but comes back to the emergency room the next day complaining of severe stent colic, and the CT scans repeated in the emergency room. As you can see, and you suspected based on the prior imaging on the retrograde pylogram, this stent went through the area of, of concern. This is a portion of the stent, not a stone and the stent went and curled outside of the kidney, so it went extra ureteral. So what are your next steps? You could either continue with observation here, remove the stent and try and replace it, place a nephrostomy tube, try and attempt ureteroscopy or a left ureteral reconstruction since there's some sort of pathology going in in the ureter. At least this point in time, you, you probably wanna do something more definitive as far as drainage of the kidney. This urologist removed the stent and started the patient on pain medication and antibiotics, realizing the stent was in the wrong position, but did not go to the next step, which would typically be a nephrostomy tube. So the patient was then referred for further evaluation. So this is six months after the ureteroscopy and three weeks after the stent was placed. No fevers, no flank pain. We took him to the OR five days later um, and left retrograde pylogram demonstrated a blind ending prox proximal ureter and left ureteroscopy demonstrated a narrowing of the left proximal ureter to mid ureter unable to advance the scope beyond this mid ureter. And the left nephrostomy tube was placed at postoperatively. So the next steps, you have this nephrostomy tube that's in position that shows that they have end drainage at this portion of the, of the kidney. And there's a lot of options, observation, obsessed function, anterograde stent placement, repeat ureteroscopy and anterograde retrograde bypass to, to bypass the stricture, ureteral reconstruction, nephrectomy and chronic nephrostomy tube. Obviously a young, healthy person, so chronic nephrostomy tube would ideally, would not be the ideal scenario. So we initially assessed for, we initially opted for observation to assess the kidney function. The renal scan approximately four weeks after the nephrostomy tube demonstrated this kidney function approximately 13% on the left side with the, uh, on the differential function. And the nephrostomy tube output was approximately 200 cc's per day with avoided urine output of 1800 cc's per day. Creatinine remained stable at 1.6. At this point in time, I discussed with her the different treatment options, and she opted to continue with observation to see if we could recover enough function that would make this kidney salvageable. So a renal scan again another month later, so now she's two months post-nephrostomy tube placement, demonstrated the same poor kidney function on the left side, left nephrostomy output that's poor, creatinine remained stable. So the options now, chronic nephrostomy tube for this poorly functioning kidney, not a good option. Remove the nephrostomy tube and observe. This is potentially an option if you could get the patient sterile and remove it, but once you place a foreign object into this kidney, the risk of, in, of inducing inf or uh, of introducing infection into this kidney is high and potentially can cause a problem. You could reconstruct this poorly functioning kidney, but that would have fairly poor success rates for a poor, 
a fairly poorly functioning kidney. Same thing with autotransplantation and then nephrectomy. So what does the guidelines recommend? So kidneys with uncertain function, an imaging study that uh, will evaluate for function, such as the DTPA or MAG3 renal scan, is will, will identify if there's clinically significant loss of renal function. This can assess urinary tract obstruction as well. And um, this may be limited in cases of moderate to kidney, severe kidney disease. And in patients that are obstructed, unobstructing the kidney will allow for better assessment of the baseline renal function. And when the kidney has negligible renal function, the, uh, the guidelines is recommended nephrectomy. Nephrectomy can be considered in patients with requiring treatment for pain, persistent infectional pyronephritis. Um, overall renal function and contralateral kidney, kidney condition should be considered. Renal scan, serum, creatinine, and EGFR is all relevant. And if it's obstructed, drainage and reassessment of renal function. An observation is reasonable in patients who are asymptomatic. So if this patient had had no intervention done and had poor kidney function and had opted for observation of this poorly functioning kidney, it would have been a reasonable treatment option potentially. This patient underwent an uncomplicated lap left nephrectomy. The postoperative creatinine remained stable at 1.6. And for this type of patient, a metabolic evaluation is essential. She's a recurrent stone former. She now has a solitary kidney and has had a complex stone history. So it would be very important for her to go, the, uh, go through the metabolic evaluation Dr. Lissy will talk about and go on medical prevention therapy in, in addition to dietary therapy. Thank you. So I'm gonna move on to Dr. Brian Matlaga, who's from Johns Hopkins. He's gonna to talk to us about interesting cases regarding dietary therapy and pregnancy. Uh, thanks, Brian. Great, thank, thank you, Dr. Shaw. And um, I'd like to thank the AUA for their support of this. Uh, bringing us onto the uh, electronic platform in a way that lets us still uh, accomplish much of what we can accomplish at the uh, uh, normal annual meeting. So I'll start off with a, a case discussion that's a little less surgically intense than uh, Dr. Shaw's. Um, we'll review more uh, some of the dietary uh, recommendations that we make for our stone formers and um, the evidence that really supports that. And, so the case facts are uh, someone that I think all of us see very commonly in, in our clinics. Um, it's a 45-year-old male, started forming stones around 30 years of age. Every few years, he passes a stone spontaneously. He's undergone one shockwave lithotripsy treatment. By and large, he, he's a fairly healthy individual. At some point in the past, he was prescribed potassium citrate uh, for uh, stone prophylaxis, but um, he didn't really know if it was effective and, and he stopped taking it after a, a period of time. No one in the family has stones. Presently, you know, he has uh, just occasional intermittent symptoms, not terribly bothersome, but he, what he really wants to do is to figure out a way to uh, halt the, um, or reduce the uh, incidence of stone formation. So. If we look at his 24-hour uh, urine studies, these are fairly unremarkable studies. He, he underwent two uh, consecutive 24-hour collections. The uh, volume is a little bit lower than target. Obviously, we'd like to see about two liters a day. He comes in around uh, you know, 1.3 to 1.5 liters a day. His calcium is uh, slightly elevated. Um, ideally, we'd like to see less than 250 milligrams a day. So he's up you know, around 300 milligrams both, both days. Oxalate, also slightly elevated. Ideally, we'd like to see less than 40 milligrams a day, and he, he's pretty consistent from day to day. Uh, citrate is on the lower end of where we'd like to see it. Sodium is a little bit higher than where we'd like to see it. So you can see he has, uh, nothing is um, in and of itself as a, a single or individual factor uh, markedly out of line, 
but it's, uh, it's, it's a number of very mild abnormalities. And I think this is something that has a, a lot of face validity for us. All of us see patients like this in our clinics. And as a result of these, his uh, supersaturation calcium oxalate is slightly higher than where we'd like to see it. And so this is likely um, uh, then translates into his uh, incidence of stone formation. So what can we do from a dietary standpoint? You know, if he's a, an individual that's uh, young, he wishes to avoid medications to some extent, if at all possible. And so we'd like to initially begin our stone mitigation uh, with uh, dietary maneuvers. So the first thing that we want to do is look at what can we do from a dietary calcium counseling standpoint. And many patients come to us with, uh, you know, kind of research done on Dr. Google, if you will, looking at uh, ways and oftentimes they, they have uh, uh, self-initiated a low calcium diet in the uh, thought process that this may reduce stone risk. So this, there's actually very uh, robust evidence. Um, this is a study that's, uh, you know, almost two decades old now. Um, but it's really the landmark study looking at dietary calcium uh, for patients with stone formation and idiopathic hypercalciuria. And what uh, this is the Borghi study, what his group from Italy did is they evaluated a low calcium diet in a prospective randomized fashion. And what they did uh, specifically is they took 120 men who had idiopathic hypercalciuria. They randomized them to a low calcium diet, <clears throat> which was defined as 400 milligrams of calcium per day and a normal calcium diet, which is 1,200 milligrams. And the 1,200 milligrams is very consistent with what the US RDA uh, recommendations are for uh, calcium intake. And their primary outcome was the time to first stone formation. And what they found was that at five years follow-up, the low calcium group had almost a two-fold uh, recurrence rate relative to the normal calcium group. Oxalate was higher in the low calcium diet which is, is what were the primary driver of the increase in calcium oxalate supersaturation that the authors found. So um, uh, fairly good evidence, and, and this is just it in graphical form. This is, is fairly good level one evidence that a um, uh, low calcium diet uh, will significantly reduce stone risk. So this is just a, another graphical formation, and you can see that the diversion point happens around a two to three year uh, time period where you start to see increase um, uh, recurrence rate uh, for the low calcium cohort. So what about calcium supplements? Because our, our patients do uh, oftentimes now uh, come to us having been initiated on calcium supplementation either on their own with over-the-counter supplements or by their uh, primary care physician. And so calcium supplements certainly can promote hypercalciuria, particularly at the initiation of therapy. However, the magnitude of hypercalciuria really depends on the duration of treatment, but also the patient population. For example, there's evidence that the uh, hypercalciuria that results following calcium supplementation may be less severe in a postmenopausal group as compared to uh, younger cohorts. So what do we recommend for patients with calcium supplements? So calcium citrate is the preferred. There's uh, the, the um, uh, uh, retail name or trade name for this is Citracal, but calcium citrate is the preferred formulation uh, because there's robust evidence that it does not cause significant change in urinary saturation of calcium oxalate or calcium phosphate. Practically speaking, what do we do? So if you have a, a stone former who's on calcium supplementation and is forming calcium stones, then you want to obviously check a 24-hour urine calcium. And if that 24-hour urine calcium is elevated, uh, we would then recommend beginning uh, thiazide treatment because essentially those patients are being uh, can be treated as a um, absorptive hypercalciuric 
and the medical management of kidney stones guidelines has a, a very nice pathway, and, and we'll discuss that uh, at another point in the uh, lessons today, but it has a very nice pathway of um, how to manage patients with uh, idiopathic hypercalciuria. What about vitamin D? So at this point in time, there's really a paucity of good <clears throat> epidemiologic and clinical evidence. So hopefully this is the type of thing that don't show up on, on board exams. But uh, clinically speaking, this is still something that we need to know uh, how to counsel our patients for. So what do we know? Well, repletion of vitamin D is associated with health benefits and, and there's really not a health benefit to having a low vitamin D. So we would want to uh, replete someone with known low vitamin D, but it may affect calcium balance. And so really the approach that we take at this time is we approach it as if we uh, were initiating on a calcium supplementation as, as I shared in the previous slides, meaning that we want to uh, check a 24 hour urine study looking at calcium excretion after the initiation of therapy. And if uh, the vitamin D for whatever reason initiates a, a hypercalciuric response, that's a situation where uh, thiazide medication um, would likely be beneficial for those patients. Sodium restriction is also addressed within um, uh, guidelines documents, and it's also uh, something that we would be concerned about in the present patient who has uh, elevated sodium excretion. We know that dietary sodium can influence renal calcium excretion. An increase of about 100 milliequivalents of sodium per day will increase urinary calcium by about 50 milligrams per day. And an excess uh, dietary sodium will also attenuate the hypocalciuric effect of thiazides. So if you have someone on a thiazide and they can't get their dietary sodium intake uh, under control and they have increased sodium excretion in the urine, the, the thiazide is really not gonna have a, um, uh, a beneficial effect on reducing calcium excretion. Non-calcium stone formers will also benefit from sodium restriction. These are cysteine stone formers, uric acid stone formers. Really for all stone formers, uh, sodium restriction is important. What about fructose? So fructose is uh, something that's uh, fairly ubiquitous, especially in uh, the United States, um, but certainly you know, uh, throughout the world as well. Uh, but it's a particular problem in the American diet. Uh, so beginning in the late 1960s, 1967 specifically, there was a widespread addition of high fructose corn syrup to, Amer to the American diet. It's been implicated in uh, the rise of obesity in the American population. Um, and uh, Dr. Curran, Dr. Taylor from Boston uh, looked specifically at the risk of uh, fructose consumption and how it's associated with stone uh, disease. And what they found was that fructose can increase urinary calcium excretion and that kidney stone risk in the populations they studied was significantly correlated with fructose intake. So reduction of uh, fructose and fructose containing foods is something that's important for our uh, calcium stone formers. And that's something that uh, you, know, you do want your patients to go through um, uh, their diet and identify uh, potentially sources of, uh, of that um, um, uh, nutritional uh, finding. So what about the effect of animal protein on calcium intake? Uh, so this is a, a very nice study. It's, a, it's uh, fairly old at this point, it's actually from 1988. Dr. Uh, Charles Pack from uh, UT Southwestern looked at the effect of animal protein on calcium excretion. And what they found was that a uh, increase in animal protein, so they compared three diets, a vegetarian diet, an ovo-vegetarian diet, and an animal protein diet, and the cohort that was taking the animal protein diet had the greatest urinary calcium excretion. So we do want patients to moderate their consumption of animal protein as well. So if we put all this together, what are the take-home points? So 
we want patients to maintain fluid intake that allows them to maintain a urine volume of over two liters per day. Uh, and so really urine volume is what we're more focused on rather than fluid intake. Um, but certainly to get two liters urine volume, the patients are gonna need to take in typically at least two liters of fluids over the course of a day. We do want the patients to have what we'd consider to be a normal calcium intake. And so this is a, a calcium intake of about 1,000 to 1,200 milligrams per day. If the patient does require calcium supplementation, for example, patients with uh, skeletal conditions, calcium citrate is what's recommended and for them to take it with meals. And we do want to check a 24-hour urine in the patients while they're on a supplement, as they may require thiazide therapy for hypercalciuria. We want a strict low-salt diet, so sodium restriction of about 2,300 to 3,300 milligrams per day. A teaspoon of salt is about um, uh, 2,300, so it's a fairly strict sodium, uh, low-sodium diet. Moderate animal protein, six to eight ounces per day, about the size of a deck of cards, and then a low oxalate diet, as best patients can comply with that. It, it is a challenging diet to comply with. And these are all supported by uh, data from the uh, Medical Management of Kidney Stones Guidelines document, which uh, I would encourage everyone to, uh, to review uh, at some point. So the second case we'll look at is a pregnant woman. And so this is a, a situation where none of us likes uh, to get these pages because it is high stakes poker but you're asked to see a patient on a labor and delivery unit where the physicians think that she has a kidney stone. She has a, a fairly unremarkable history, uh, first uh, time pregnancy, she has flank pain, uh, she has hematuria, some dysuria. And uh, the question is, what do we do at this point in time? So how are we gonna begin to image these, this patient? So the American College of uh, Obstetrics and Gynecology has issued uh, guidelines for diagnostic imaging during pregnancy. Uh, and they recognize, obviously, that X-ray exposure does carry potential risks uh, to the uh, developing uh, fetus. Um, and so to, uh, to guide us as physicians uh, around these risks, um, they uh, list some uh, steps that we can take. And so, for example, the risk for radiation-induced injury is greatest at 8 to 15 weeks gestation, so really in the uh, first trimester. And that being said, the x-ray exposure from a single diagnostic procedure is not believed to result in harmful fetal effects. There's never been shown increase in pregnancy loss or fetal anomalies. So these concerns shouldn't present, prevent a medically indicated x-ray from being performed. However, things like ultrasound, MR that don't rely on ionizing, ionizing radiation may be a preferred um, uh, initial study. Contest agents are likely to uh, cause harm. And if there's any question, you can also consult with an expert in dosimetry calculations, which every hospital does have. So the renal ultrasound should really be the cornerstone of the imaging evaluation of the pregnant woman because it easily detects hydronephrosis. The ultrasound obviously can be confused by uh, physiologic hydronephrosis of pregnancy, which commonly affects the right renal unit. Visualization of a ureteral jet in the bladder may be helpful uh, as these images uh, uh, demonstrate. As an alternative, magnetic resonance urography can be used. Um, there's a uh, obviously multiple um, protocols for MRI. Uh, and so in this case, you can do what's called a HASTE, H-A-S-T-E, uh, uh, MRU. And this is a non-contrast MR study, which gives you a T2-weighted image. And it does show anatomic details as well as some functional details. So it is informative. Uh, so if you have the ability to do this at your institution, it's a nice adjunct to ultrasound that still doesn't require the use of radiation. This is an example image uh, from our institution showing a patient who has right-sided hydronephrosis on the ultrasound. But in this case, you can see there's a perinephric fluid around the kidney. There's a rim signed around the renal unit. 
so all these do suggest that um, there is presence of acute obstruction in this renal unit, which would be more consistent with an obstructing stone rather than a physiologic hydronephrosis of pregnancy. This is a CT image in a pregnant woman, uh, something that's always startling for all of us to see. Low-dose CT, though, does provide the benefits of CT, but doing it at a low dose, as Dr. Shah uh, discussed in, in his talk, really low-dose CT imaging should become a standard for uh, patients with stone disease, and, and certainly in the pregnant woman, that's a case where those patients will significantly benefit from uh, the reduction in radiation exposure. So if we go back to our patient, so the renal ultrasound did show a right-sided hydro, uh, no stone, no ureteral jet. An MRU was performed, uh, as that image uh, showed, which uh, demonstrated right-sided hydroureteronephrosis, and then secondary signs consistent with acute obstruction. And so now, once we've diagnosed a stone, what do we want to do? So the uh, Surgical Management of Stones Guidelines Panel, which uh, Dr. Samos, who's the, the next speaker, uh, was the, the chair of that panel, uh, actually identified um, uh, recommendations to make for pregnant women. And so really the spontaneous passage rates for pregnant women with ureteral stones have not been demonstrated to be different than those of non-pregnant patients. So really just as in the non-pregnant, we want to allow them a trial of passage. So in this case, uh, we tried a course of conservative management, which required persistent IV pain medications. So we're really failing expectant management. So what do we do now? So you can either temporarily drain the patient, and so this is with a stent or percutaneous nephrostomy, but there are drawbacks to these uh, foreign objects that we place in the system. Pregnant women have reportedly have an accelerated encrustation rate. So you're gonna require multiple drain exchanges, whether it's the stent or the nephrostomy over the course of the pregnancy. And certainly these uh, drains are painful and do have a, a negative effect on quality of life. And so that brings us into active treatment and that would be ureteroscopy. And really ureteroscopy is a very mature intervention at this point, the risks can be well controlled. Uh, anesthetic required uh, is also much improved. And so the uh, guidelines recognizes this and states that although um, uh, both uh, stents and nephrostomies can be used as temporarily drainage uh, devices, ureteroscopy is going to provide definitive treatment for the pregnant women. So taking the pregnancy uh, picture altogether, I think anyone in practice uh, is more than a few years out is going to encounter a pregnant woman with a stone. It's an important medical problem. And so you really want to have your playbook of how you're going to manage these patients. And hopefully what we've laid out in these previous slides gives you that playbook. You know, the ultrasound is the mainstay of your diagnosis. If you have access to uh, MRU at your institution, that's another non-ionizing radiation uh, approach. Low-dose CT certainly has an uh, emerging role. I think a stent and a nephrostomy, they're all acceptable treatments uh, in a way to uh, relieve acute obstruction. Inexperienced hands uh, at an institution that has the appropriate uh, obstetric support, ureteroscopy may provide for a more optimal treatment approach. And there is evidence that these stones are uh, fragile in composition. They're oftentimes hydroxyapatite and they fragment quite readily with the homium laser. So I'd like to thank you. I hope these uh, previous two lessons were helpful. And our next speaker, uh, I'll turn it over to Dr. Dina Simos, uh, the Chair of Urology at University of Alabama. Thank you. to thank the American Urologic Association for holding this seminar. My first case is of a 34-year-old man who's having moderate flank pain. His vital signs are stable. 
He's got a normal uh, complete blood count, electrolytes, BUN and creatinine and calcium are normal. Urinalysis demonstrated a few white and red cells. He was evaluated with a non-contrast CT scan. As you can see here, there's some nephromegaly on the left side and mild hydronephrosis. This was due to a six millimeter uh, distal ureteral stone. So the question uh, is what to do with this patient. His symptoms are well controlled. And according to our guidelines, uh, when symptoms are well controlled and there's no evidence of complicating features such as sepsis, a trial of observation uh, certainly should be entertained. And for those uh, individuals harboring uh, distal ureteral stones, uh, greater than five millimeters in size and less than 10 millimeters in size, uh, an alpha blocker therapy uh, could be considered for medical expulsive therapy. Uh, if you're going to uh, use an alpha blocker in this setting, the patient needs to be informed that this is in an off-label setting. So since our guidelines document was put together, there have been two large trials that I'd like to review. One is the NIH trial, uh, which was a trial randomizing patients with ureteral stones to tamsulosin versus uh, placebo. Uh, these were stones less than nine millimeters in size. The mean stone diameter in this a study was approximately 3.8 millimeters. The primary outcome was passage of the stone within uh, 28 days. It was confirmed with the CT. Uh, what they found was that there was no difference in stone passage uh, in between uh, patients on uh, tamsulosin as well as placebo. Uh, it should be noted that this, uh, this study was not powered to determine differences uh, in uh, stone position with regards to passage. The other trial uh, I'd like to review is a very large trial from China, which randomized almost 3,500 uh, patients with distal ureteral stones to tamsulosin or placebo. And the primary endpoint, end again, was passage of the stone confirmed with a CT scan, secondary endpoints being time to passage, the utilization of analgesics, and adverse events. Uh, and as you can see uh, from this plot, uh, what they found was the individuals that had stones larger than five millimeters in size benefited from uh, alpha blocker therapy. Uh, so that would be consistent with our guideline statement. Now, since then, there's been a, a large meta-analysis that was done and published in the Journal of Urology last year, uh, where they analyzed 56 uh, randomized controlled trials. And what they found was that uh, medical expulsive therapy with alpha blockers was associated with a greater chance of stone passage, a shorter expulsion time, and the necessity for fewer interventions. They did a subgroup analysis in this study, and it was uh, found that patients with uh, larger than five millimeter stones in the proximal or distal ureter had better expulsion rates. So therefore, the takeaway message, I think, uh, if you have patients with stones that are uh, larger than five millimeters in size and less than 10 millimeters in size in the ureter uh, that uh, medical expulsive therapy with uh, alpha blockers can be entertained. So uh, there's some new agents that are being uh, evaluated uh, for medical expulsive therapy. Uh, the phosphodiesterase inhibitors show some promise. Uh, there was recently a study uh, published demonstrating that mirabegron uh, might uh, facilitate uh, stone passage. However, it should be noted that these are uh, smaller studies. So in our case, uh, the patient was still having, uh, six weeks later, intermittent uh, mild to moderate flank pain. 
and a KUB x-ray demonstrated uh, that the stone was still present. So a little bit of a sidebar here, you know, you're going to have patients uh, with these uh, ureteral stones and they're, they're feeling well. Uh, and uh, those that uh, have documented a stone passage by uh, seeing it in the commode or capturing it, uh, according to the NIH study where they looked at this uh, with CT, that about 94% of them were actually documented to have having passed their stones. However, those patients who had no documentation uh, of stone passage uh, with seeing the stones, uh, who were asymptomatic, almost 30% still harbored a stone. So I think in this uh, group of patients, uh, you need to talk with them about doing another imaging study, which can be tailored. For example, if you can see the stone readily on uh, the KUB x-ray and it's gone on a follow-up KUB x-ray, then there's a good chance that the stone has passed. Uh, if you can't see it, then it's, uh, you can do a, a study uh, like a CT scan, a low-dose uh, non-contrast CT scan, and you can also tailor it. For example, if the stone is in the distal ureter, you would just do a stone, uh, excuse me, a CT scan of the pelvis. So now we have a patient uh, that is out six weeks after the initial manifestation of the stone, and the question is, is what to do uh, for this patient? So uh, according to our guidelines, uh, in most patients, if observation or medical expulsive therapy is not successful within six uh, weeks, uh, or the patient uh, decides to intervene sooner uh, based on a shared decision-making approach, again, I want to emphasize shared decision-making approach, uh, we as uh, the clinician should offer uh, the patient definitive stone management. And this is based on studies that have demonstrated if a, a ureteral stone is going to pass, it usually will do so within this six-week interval. So again, as a part of the shared decision-making approach when discussing options for management of a distal ureteral stone, uh, we need to inform the patients that shockwave lithotripsy is the procedure associated with the least morbidity, but ureteroscopy has a greater stone-free rate with a single procedure. And this was certainly demonstrated across the board for proximal, middle, and distal ureteral stones in our guidelines analysis, higher stone-free rates generated with ureteroscopy. So uh, getting back uh, to our case, uh, the patient underwent uh, ureteroscopic laser lithotripsy and removal of the fragments. Uh, there was moderate uh, bullous edema present. And as a consequence, I decided to place an internalized ureteral stent. Again, as a sidebar, I'd just like to talk about opioids and the management of patients uh, with stones, in particular those undergoing a ureteroscopic stone removal. We're certainly in the midst of an opioid epi uh, epidemic. It has been demonstrated uh, in studies that patients undergoing ureteroscopy uh, who have been prescribed uh, opioids, that 7% of these individuals will have prolonged opioid utilization greater than 60 days after the procedure. So as much as possible, uh, we, we need to strive for opioid-free pain management, the utilization of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents. There has been some ERAS protocols that have been utilized to treat patients undergoing ureteroscopy. Andrew Portis from uh, Minneapolis uh, had one that was supposed to be presented at this year's AUA, uh, where uh, patients were administered a combination of Ketorolac and acetaminophen 
at the start of the procedure, and this resulted in a reduction in the utilization of opioids. So as we know, uh, patients that have uh, indwelling ureteral stents aren't happy campers. Uh, there's actually an NIH study uh, that's ongoing uh, trying to understand uh, the symptoms associated with stents. And there was an abstract that was going to present, uh, that was online to be presented at this AUA uh, of four clinical centers looking at uh, stent symptoms. And they found that, uh, that this symptom certainly varied between individuals. Uh, but as far as when did it, what, was there a time when the uh, symptoms were most intense? No, the symptoms persisted throughout the dwell time of the uh, ureteral stent. So uh, getting back to this patient, uh, what can we do to attenuate stent-related symptoms? Certainly, uh, there are randomized prospective trials and meta-analyses that demonstrate that either an alpha blocker alone or an anticholinergic agent will reduce uh, stent-related symptoms, including, including irritate avoiding symptoms, uh, pain, uh, as, as well as quality of life being better. So how about the utilization of the combination of an alpha blocker and anticholinergic agent? This was a meta-analysis uh, that was published uh, in 2015, demonstrating that the combination of an alpha blocker with an anticholinergic yielded better results than, the, uh, than either agent alone with regards to uh, irritate avoiding symptoms, pain, uh, and bother. However, since this meta-analysis, there have been two studies looking at uh, the efficacy of combination therapy. One showed showing that uh, combo, uh, combination therapy was uh, no, be uh, no better than uh, tamsulosin, uh, and the other one demonstrating some benefits of a combination therapy, but only of the first few days after it was instituted. Dr. Uh, Jonathan Harper at the University of Washington actually did a study that was published uh, a few years back where he administered BNO suppositories to uh, patients at the time of ure ureteroscopy, just before the procedure was started, uh, as an attempt to uh, pre uh, preemptively block the pain. And in this randomized controlled study, he found that the utilization of the BNO suppository lowered irritative avoiding symptoms and was associated with less bother symptoms. With regards to stents, uh, you know, we, we need to be certainly cognizant uh, of the stent being present and making sure that the patient removed the stents because uh, with a lost stent, uh, you can have a certainly incrustation and actually renal functional compromise. So uh, registries can be utilized uh, to follow patients with stents, and now there's a number of tracking tools that are now uh, available uh, for tracking uh, patients with stents uh, that uh, actually uh, do this by uh, going into the electronic uh, health record and letting you know which patients have the stent. And currently at UAB, uh, we're evaluating a proprietary tracking tool that was uh, developed at the University of Michigan. With regards to the utilization of extraction strings, 
these have been found to be, uh, you know, for the patient less painful than for proceeding with the cystoscopy for stent removal. There is a risk of dislodgement uh, that is more uh, prevalent in females. And the uh, Michigan uh, Research Collaborative demonstrated those individuals with tethered stents frequently visited the uh, ER more commonly. So I would like to shift gears and talk about another case. Uh, this is of a 58-year-old uh, woman uh, with right flank pain. Uh, she's known to have uh, right, uh, right renal stones. She underwent an attempt at percutaneous nephrostolithotomy at another institution. The urologist successfully accessed the collecting system, looked in the renal pelvis, and couldn't find the stone. The uh, patient's laboratory uh, studies are normal. And uh, here you can see the stone. And uh, what this stone is, is a, a large conglomerate of stones in a type 2 calocele diverticulum. Uh, this is a diverticular cavity that communicates with the central portion of the collecting system, either an infundibulum or the renal pelvis, not the calyx. And these are uh, cases best managed with uh, with laparoscopy, uh, robotic surgery, uh, and rarely open surgery is necessary. And here you can see uh, the cavity uh, that's uh, quite adjacent uh, to the renal vasculature. And again, our guideline statements statement in patients who fail or are unlikely to have successful results with shockwave lithotripsy, ureteroscopy, or percutaneous nephrostolithotomy, uh, you can offer the patient laparoscopy uh, with or without robotic assist assistance and rarely open surgery. So here you can see uh, the uh, this is the, the laparoscopic case and these were the stone fragments. Uh, the, the diverticular cavity was open, the stone fragments were evacuated and the cavity was fulgurated. I've seen four such cases uh, in my career and I'd like to just show you another one uh, that I saw earlier in my career. You see a, a stone in the uh, right renal area and uh, here it's located in this uh, type 2 calocele diverticulum. So again, I would like to thank you uh, for being here for this course and again, thank the AUA. And our next uh, speaker is Dr. John Liskey, who's professor of medicine, uh, is a nephrologist who has great expertise in metabolic uh, stone management. All right, thank you very much. So uh, just to jump right into this, um, first question you might ask, what type of stones do people make? And this is data from uh, the Mayo Clinic Labs where we do a large number of kidney stone analysis uh, every year. And uh, just looked at the cross-sectional analysis of what kind of stones are being turned in. And as you can see here, the majority are gonna be uh, either majority calcium oxalate or majority hydroxyapatite calcium phosphate. So that's that 83% of all stones. That's what we tend to concentrate on, that's the most common. Less common types here would be uric acid stones at 8%, struvite at 3%, and then anything less than that is, is quite rare uh, on a statistical basis at least. Oh, there we go, sorry. Uh, but then uh, it's also a, a little more subtle than that here. If we look at um, the by broken down by age as well as by sex, 
Um, calcium oxalate stones certainly are most common in men across the age group, but more common in middle years, 40s, 50s, 60s. And the same is true of women, but then you can see there's an interesting trend towards more appetite stones in younger women in particular. And I don't think we understand that phenomenon very well yet. And then in both sexes, we start seeing more uric acid stones as you get older, and it's uh, getting up to 10 to 20% when you get to 80 or 90 uh, years old. Again, that likely reflects changing physiology as we get older. So I'm going to go through these cases as far as our metabolic workup and how we might approach this. The first case here is a 25-year-old airline pilot. Uh, he passed his first kidney stone in his early 30s that was made of calcium. He had a second episode a few years later, then a third at age 42. Um, the third stone we had an analysis, it was 90% calcium oxalate monohydrate and 10% hydroxyapatite, so quite common. Unfortunately for this gentleman, it's an important um, consideration because he has to be certified that he's not metabolically active in order to keep flying uh, airplanes. This is what his CT scan looked like. So he still did have a few calocele tip stones you can see there um, in his uh, left kidney. Uh, the key concept that we think about with kidney stone prevention is supersaturation. Uh, and that's shown here um, pictorially. Saturation is the point at which if you dropped a crystal, in this case, say, of calcium oxalate, it would neither shrink nor grow. If the urine is supersaturated, that crystal would tend to grow. If it's undersaturated, it would tend to dissolve. And you can certainly do it this way in research studies. In the past, people have done these sort of measurements, but that would not really work well for a clinical lab. Uh, so typically, what we use is the program called Equal to. It is a computer simulation of the different uh, potential binding partners for things like calcium and oxalate and gives you a predicted relative supersaturation or uh, the scale that we use at Mayo is a, a called Delta Gibbs score. But they give you similar information that um, for the relative saturation, anything greater than one means you're oversaturated. Uh, for the DG scale, anything over zero means you're oversaturated. And again, this is specific to whatever crystal uh, you're talking about. In these stones, they certainly form urine is supersaturated, and for calcium oxalate in particular, we all walk around with urine most commonly, almost all the time, that's well oversaturated for calcium oxalate. But in general, uh, kidney stone formers tend to be more oversaturated than non-stone formers, and the type of saturation tends to match up with the type of kidney stone you make. Um, there are probably a lot of other factors related to biology in the kidney, um, but uh, we don't have a way to measure those currently. So supersaturation is the workhorse of the um, stone clinic. We can uh, fix various elements of it, and um, therefore that's the key lab that we want to focus on when we see people. Shown here is the typical lab evaluation. These are the things that are in a typical saturation panel that you might get. Um, I've broken them up here into things that we tend to focus on in the top there, like volume, pH, calcium oxalate, citrate, uric acid, but we have either very specific dietary or drug uh, treatments for those if they're abnormal. The bottom are the things that are needed for equal to. They also provide good insight into diet as well. Each of these elements uh, tells you something about what the person's doing. And then creatinine is very important for uh, judging how complete the collection is. So shown here again is our case in our 45-year-old airline pilot. His actual labs are in the yellow column. Um, and then the way that uh, I like to think about it here, the reference median would be the median in the population, the normal population without kidney stones. And then 25 to 75% is that sort of middle 50% range of the, of the normal population. Because all of these risk factors, it's really not like many labs where we're thinking about a 95% risk, but rather 
there's a gradation of risk. So um, it's a combination of things, but the higher you are in a given risk factor, the more risk it's adding as far as so if you look at the numbers here, uh, urine calcium was the main outlier here. 447 is clearly a very high excretion well over the 75th percentile. Um, other things in this actually were not all that remarkable. His volume at uh, 2.38 liters is not all that low. Uh, but because of this high calcium, his calcium oxalate and calcium phosphate supersaturations are high. Uh, and uh, the other important thing that we look at for um, uh, some formers, we always want to get a metabolic panel that includes calcium, uh, phosphorus, and uric acid. In his case, uh, these things were all normal and his kidney function was quite good. So hypercalcemia seemed to be what was going on with him. Um, uh, this is uh, the, the um, differential for it. So the vast majority of them are going to be idiopathic or genetic. Uh, the primary differential we want to make is to make sure the patient does not have primary hyperparathyroidism, which is treatable. Uh, the other causes here, like immobilization, Paget's disease, vitamin D and calcium excess, um, sarcoidosis, hyperthyroidism, um, Cushing's disease, all of these things would be apparent based on either the other laboratories or other um, elements of the history and physical. So again, so the vast majority of people we see are going to have um, genetic hypercalcuria. Uh, it uh, tends to be familial. So if we had urine studies on his family, about half of his first-degree relatives would also have hypercalcuria. Uh, that doesn't mean they would necessarily have kidney stones. It's all a risk factor, and there are other things that go into that, including things such as a diet. So we know, and we heard him, uh, uh, Dr. Metlago's talked that sodium and protein have uh, big effects on um, your calcium excretion as well. Uh, these patients tend to have low bone marrow density. Uh, the genetics is likely to be complicated. We do know it's familial and there's a genetic component. And certainly there are known monogenic causes listed there like Barter's disease. Uh, in general, the risk of having one of these monogenic causes is gonna be higher if there is a very strong family history uh, the patient has started forming stones at a very early age, has chronic kidney disease, or has nephrocalcinosis on their um, uh, imaging studies. Uh, oftentimes, it's not just one risk factor, but many. So um, hypercalcemia is common, but often these patients will have other things that are probably contributing to their stones, such as hyperuricosuria, hyperoxaluria, low urinary citrate, and low urine volume. So these are the, the general recommendations, which again, that you saw on the earlier slide, but in, I've listed them here in uh, what I view as sort of the order of importance. So drinking fluid is always uh, gonna be helpful no matter what kind of kidney stones you're making. So that's always part of our recommendation. Um, dietary calcium, we want to be normal, but we want people to avoid calcium pills, um, want lower sodium diet, moderate animal protein, and then oxalate, I would tailor more to the, the patient in the labs uh, because that is the hardest of these things to do. And if um, it's not needed, you probably don't need to stress it as much. And in general, people can't do everything at once. So you really wanna pick the things that you think are gonna be more helpful for your given patient. As far as the um, pharmacologic treatments, thiazide directs are gonna be the mainstay of the treatment for patients with hypercalcuria that we think is a underlying genetic cause. Um, Indapamide and chlorthaldone are the two thiazides that have longer half-lives. Uh, we do have, uh, for chlorthaldone in particular, good uh, placebo-controlled trial to show that that will reduce your kidney stone risk. Uh, these are drugs you have to follow up and, and do follow-up labs in a month or so to make sure you don't have unintended metabolic 
consequences such as hypokalemia or hyponatremia. Uh, you also want to check the follow-up labs to make sure the urines have changed in a, in a direction that you are, are happy with. If uh, for whatever reason thiazides can't work, potassium citrate is an alternative for this patient group. Uh, the citrate is a crystallization inhibitor and there is evidence from the literature that uh, the effect of the base that you get with citrate will also reduce urine calcium to some extent. And then finally listed here, if, if there are reasons not to use either of these first two, uh, there's older literature suggesting that uh, neutral phosphorus can help with these patients, probably in part by suppressing vitamin D, and then that in turn suppresses your urine calcium excretion, and also the, the phosphorus is a neutral, um, is a uh, growth inhibitor. It's a little harder to use. You have to give it typically three times a day. Um, so it's falling out of favor compared to the first one there. The case here is a 64-year-old farmer. He'd had four kidney stone attacks over 25 years. His also were calcium oxalate stones. His recent CT was clear of stones as well. These are again his labs shown in the same format. And in many ways, the labs are very similar to our first case. His urine volume is actually a little better at almost three liters, but his urine calcium is high at 440 milligrams. Um, he has other evidence that he eats pretty generously with very high sodium, chloride, uric acid, sulfate, probably contributing to this as well. Uh, but if we look over at his blood test, uh, we note that um, even though uh, he, he had had a nephrectomy, so his, um, he has some chronic kidney disease there with a creatinine of 1.6, but also his serum calcium here at 11 should really draw your attention, and his phosphorus actually is on the low side as well. So anytime we see hypercalcemia in our stone formers, we have to think what's uh, causing that. And our main differential here would be hyperparathyroidism. And this is showing a series, a large series of surgically proven patients with um, primary hyperparathyroidism. And as a general rule, they all had um, high serum calciums. The cutoff in this lab was right around 10. And then their phosphorus tends to run on the low rather than the high side as well. Um, so you, if you do see that, you definitely want to check a PPH level and um, if, they, if it is inappropriately high, then refer them to a surgeon for further uh, management. So as far as hyperparathyroidism and kidney stones, in stone clinics, about two to eight percent of the stones can be attributed to this. This is from tertiary clinics. It may be a lower number in um, one more of a primary care setting. Around 20% of those that looked at the other way that have primary hyperparathyroidism will develop stones. So certainly you're not um, destined to. It's actually the minority that do get stones. Um, there are risk factors such as being male, younger age that are um, known. Um, the hypercalcuria is not necessarily profound. Um, there may be other genetic modifiers like the calcium sensing receptor. Um, although the hypercalcemia is a, a, a real um, key here, it's not necessarily uh, going to be dramatic. And really in this series, it clusters right around 10.5. So it's a little high, but not dramatically so. And again, having hypophosphatemia really um, should raise the suspicion even more. So the third case here is a 23-year-old uh, female. She's a recent college graduate. She had had two uh, stone attacks over five years. Her last stone was also calcium oxalate monohydrate. So again, a theme here, these are all calcium oxalate stones. Her recent CT scan still had two tiny calcium tip stones as well. Uh, in this case, when we look at her labs, it's a little different than the first two. Her urine calcium at 183 is really not uh, high. Um, and if you look at the rest of her parameters there, they're really on the low side, if anything. So it's not really a diet issue here. 
But if you look at her urine volume, it's um, only 810 milliliters and her osmolality is uh, high as well. So both of those are telling you that she really doesn't drink very much. And then if we look over here at her supersaturations, even though her urine calcium and other things aren't that high in the urine, uh, because of this incredibly low urine volume, she has the highest uh, calcium oxalate supersaturation we've seen yet of these patients. So uh, clearly you can get stones just from not drinking enough water. And I would argue in this patient, um, putting her on a thiazide or citrate is probably not going to help very much. We really need to get her to try to, to drink more. And this is some study, uh, some data from a study we did here, just trying to make the point that if you can increase your urine volume by taking in more water, you will dilute out the urine and uh, lower the supersaturation. In this case, what we did was put patients on Ovaptan, which uh, blocks the uh, vasopressin 2 receptor in the kidney. You can't concentrate your urine as much, so then you have to drink more. And when we did this to these 20 individuals, their um, secretions of things like calcium oxalate really didn't change at all. But because their urine volume went up from 1.8 to 4.7 liters, their urine supersaturation for calcium oxalate here went from 0.95 to uh, zero, which is really quite a low number in uh, the population if you look at that. So this really proves the point that if we can drink more water, it really should be very effective. And there is an ongoing NIH study where they're really testing this using um, smart water bottles and other uh, techniques to try to get people to drink more water and make uh, to really prove the point, which isn't really well established in the literature, that water therapy in and of itself can prevent uh, kidney stones. Uh, so this is case number five. He's a 58-year-old gentleman. He has a history of a Roux-en-Y gastric bypass for obesity that was complicated by diabetes and obstructive sleep apnea. He lost about 50 kilograms from his baseline weight of uh, 148, um, and his diabetes improved. Well, unfortunately, now he has a one centimeter obstructing kidney stone in his renal pelvis. Again, this is a 100% calcium oxalate monohydrate stone. When we look at his urines, uh, we can see there's a very different pattern here. His volume really wasn't that bad, but his urine calcium is low, not high, but his oxalate here is about three times normal, so very hyperoxaluric, and his urine citrate is uh, unmeasurable. And so this pattern really, if you see this in a, a urine, you can say without even having the history that likely there is a, a, a GI issue here, and this is enteric hyperoxaluria by definition. So what is uh, oxalate that's shown here? Um, it's a, a two-carbon four-oxygen molecule. It has two negative charges. It likes to bind to calcium and make calcium oxalate crystals shown here. The things that we eat that have uh, calcium oxalate in it also have calcium oxalate crystals in the plants themselves, and some things have much more than others. So like rhubarb and spinach are quite famous. Nuts tend to be very high, uh, chocolate on the high side as well. And the way that it works with any cause of fat malabsorption, in this case, it was a Roux-en-Y gastric bypass, but there can be many causes such as pancreatic insufficiency or um, old um, inflammatory bowel disease. But having fats delivered to the colon, they like to bind the calcium that's in the calcium oxalate compounds in the plants you might eat. That frees up the oxalate to the extent you have bile acid malabsorption. That will also increase permeability. This excess um, oxalate is then reabsorbed higher. So typically, you might absorb only 5 or 10% of the oxalate you eat in plants. But if you have fat malabsorption, this might go up to 10 or 20 or 30%. And suddenly, not even eating all that much oxalate, you have uh, enteric hyperoxaluria. And this just gives you an idea of the relevant numbers. So 
where calcium oxalate stone formers that have hyperoxyurea for unclear reasons, it tends to be relatively modest, around 50 milligrams per day. These enteric patients tend to be more like 50 to 100 milligrams per day. And then if you start seeing numbers over 100 milligrams, think uh, if they might have a genetic cause, uh, namely primary hyperoxyurea, which is quite serious and needs to be further evaluated. Exactly what the risk is for kidney stones after this type of surgery. Uh, we did a study at Mayo and it compared obese patients on the, the solid line. And then these are the ruin Y patients in this dotted line. And in general, after about six months, your risk was higher and it just kept being higher throughout the 10 years. So that in general, you're about twice as likely to get a kidney stone if you've had one of these surgeries compared to if you have not. So if you do see a patient, uh, with kidney stones and a history of a bariatric surgery, that should prompt you to do a workup, even if it's only their first stone. As far as treatments here, uh, fluids is number one, low fat, low oxalate diet. They really need to see a dietitian to get a good handle on this. Uh, we use a lot of calcium. The calcium given in excess um, as pills will bind up oxalate in their gut. Um, and then you can try, there's not really great evidence that things like a bile acid binders or extra pyridoxin might be useful, but that's really not established. And then citrate, in our case, the citrate was low, so it would make sense to give them potassium citrate. Uh, the final case is a 64-year-old gentleman with ulcerative colitis. He had had a colostomy, then a pancolectomy. Uh, he had two recent stone events, and uh, his stones were 100% uric acid. So this is the first one that's not calcium oxalate. His labs are shown here, and the really remarkable thing is this pH here. Um, and so um, a urine pH on a 24-hour urine of 4.8 is incredibly low. The average is going to be about 6, and people tend to cluster right around 6. So when you get down to this low, it's really telling you that something's going on. Uh, other things were not all that remarkable in his urine, but that very low pH was the cause of his stone disease. And the reason is that the form of uric acid that needs to precipitate to form uric acid kidney stone has to be in the acid form. And the pK of this is 5.3. So as your urine pH gets to 5.3 or lower, suddenly all of the uric acid that's around will be in the uh, insoluble form. So that if you're at a pH of 5, you can only get about 150 milligrams per liter of um, uric acid in solution. Whereas if you're at a pH of 6.5, suddenly you can get 1,200 milligrams in Causes of this tend to be diarrhea, um, where you're losing base in the diarrhea, or patients like this that have abnormal uh, drains, like ileostomies, um, taking an excess of protein. Um, and then commonly we see this in patients who have type 4 renal tubular acidosis, where they're not making enough ammonia, and then they get very low urine pH as well. The treatment here is going to be low protein, more volume, and then uh, base in the form of potassium citrate. And then why is the citrate low? Well, it turns out that the citrate is freely filtered into the urine, but we reabsorb this and enters the citric acid cycle and gets turned back into bicarbonate. And this is part of normal physiology so that if you're losing base, the kidney's going to compensate for this. So not only will your urine pH be low, but your urine citrate will be low. So the last couple of slides here just summarize um, the treatment strategies here. So hypercalcuria, this typically is due to uh, uh, genetics or hyperparathyroidism. Um, the diet treatments would be low salt, low protein, and then thiazides. Hyperoxyurea, this is typically either dietary or fat malabsorption or combination of both. So we typically would use a low-fat, low-oxalate diet. And then if it is enteric, we use calcium supplements to bind up the oxalate. Uh, low citrate and low urine pH is often due to either dietary imbalance or GI losses. In this case, we want to get people on a more vegetarian type diet. And then if we're going to use a medication, it's going to be potassium citrate. 
Hyperuricosuria, this is dietary, and we want to lower the urine animal protein, and then we would use a drug like allopurinol if we needed a medication. And then for low volumes, this is typically related to some combination of habit, job, environment, perhaps issues with uh, urinary incontinence. So we have to get these people to drink more fluids and uh, uh, train them aggressively to do this. And then um, really the use of things like vasopressin antagonisms has some theoretical um, interest, but not uh, ready to be uh, used for prime time yet. So with that, I'm gonna jump to the, I think we're ready for the Q&A. Perfect. Uh, thank you all. Brian's probably still logging on. There he is. Um, I do have a few questions, and I'm going to pose a couple of questions to our uh, to our uh, experts as well, just on my own questions and things that people ask me a lot about, and where I have my own opinions. Um, we have about ten minutes left for the um, Q and A. So first, there was a question that was that was posed um, from one of the audience members. Uh, Brian, you can answer this one, and then Dean, you can comment as well. Is there any increased risk associated with laser use in pregnant patients? They have some OBGYN docs in their in their area that do not recommend using laser during pregnancy. Uh, Brian, yes, you want to start? A, yeah, that, that, it's a great question. Um, when we talk about the various methods of stone fragmentation, um, Laser, particularly the homium YAG laser, has been, I think, very well evaluated in this setting. And um, there's uh, no risk um, outside of just the standard risks uh, of, uh, you know, thermal damage to the ureter, um, which exists, you know, in the use of homium YAG laser in the non-pregnant patient as well. So there's really no additional risk to the um, mother or child uh, with the homium laser. I think if you look at other modalities, um, ballistic lithotripsy, electrohydraulic lithotripsy, probably uh, would not be recommended, particularly in the distal ureter. Um, but I, I don't see a, um, and I'm not aware of any increased risk with the uh, homium yak laser. Thulium has not been studied, obviously, uh, as well, just because it's a new technology, the thulium fiber laser. Um, I don't know, Dr. Seamus, if you have anything to add to that. At one time, there was something about ultrasound possibly having some issues, but that really was theoretical. Uh, I think the other thing you mentioned, these are appetite stones, and they're frequently soft. A lot of times, they just crumble without having to utilize a laser. That's been my experience. I don't know about yours, uh, Ogis and Brian. Yeah, my experience is that the majority of these stones are fairly soft. So even when you try and just grasp them, they start, they're fairly brittle and break up pretty easily. Uh, but on the larger ones, we'll tend to use laser and they break up fairly quickly for the vast majority of cases. Yeah. Okay, I next question. This is uh, perfect for Dr. Liskin, a nice uh, segue. What is the difference between appetite and brushite, the clinical implications and medical management? Yeah, so I, I think it's more of a theoretical thing as far as I understand that the, the brushite is much rarer. It's actually an earlier form that um, is not as metabolically or, or thermodynamically stable as appetite. Um, and so the implication is that often when people are making brushite stones, they're probably growing their stones much more quickly. Um, and that, that does tend to fit with my clinical experience that those tend to be more active informers. But as far as the management strategy, really nothing. Um, the, the strategies are gonna be the same based on things like either using a citrate or um, as appropriate and other dietary things like low salt, high fluid volume. Okay, great. Anything else, Dean, on that one? 
Yeah, I think I've, I find these the most difficult uh, group of the calcium stone formers to manage. Uh, certainly, uh, I focus a lot on, uh, you know, calcium, and then you have to look what's going on in the pH if you're going to use uh, citrate. So, uh, again, very similar to, to John's approach. Okay. Here's a good question. Um, anybody doing follow-up pelvic CT scans for small distal stones in the prone position? Brian? Yeah, so that's a um, something that I have not done, although obviously you can see the value if you're trying to distinguish whether it's a, at the ureter vesical junction or if it's intraluminal within the bladder. I have not had occasion to do that, um, but I, I, I am aware of the value of it. I know Dean always supports doing a low dose pelvic CT scan if you're not sure if the stone passed or not. Do you still do that actually, or is that more theoretical? No, I, I do it. I mean, I've seen a number of patients, uh, and I have had some patients that refused to get the CTs and come back six later, uh, six six months later, and they're still having symptoms, and they're having there's a stone that's documented in this in the same area. So, uh, you know, looking at that uh, that offshoot study from the NIH trial, uh, you know, twenty almost almost thirty percent of individuals who are asymptomatic uh, were found to still have stones. Yeah, I mean that's an important point that you got that from the question that was posed. We do recommend imaging for patients that are asymptomatic that had a ureteral stone to ensure that the stone passed if they don't actually see the stone pass. And that that twenty five percent, twenty seven percent number is out there in two different papers now that show that there's a silent stone still present in the in those patients. And and even those people that you know sometimes think they passed a stone, they might see a little blood in the uh, in the commode and they they think it's a stone. And, you know, there's five or six percent of them, uh, based on that study, that uh, still had stones. But I, I don't really so much get imaging there. But the uh, the people that are asymptomatic and haven't seen a stone or captured a stone, I'll I'll, I'll highly recommend that they get reimaged. Right, great, uh, John. If you if your patient comes back to you and says that potassium citrate is too expensive for my insurance plan, what do you offer them? And what's the role of any sort of sodium-based therapy after your other offerings? Well, you know, the, uh, so, so certainly sodium bicarbonate would be a cheap choice. Um, it has some downsides. Um, there's some theoretical concern about the sodium increasing your um, urinary calcium excretion, but I think that's not really sort of proven. It's more theoretical. But that would be one alternative. Another is um, using a uh, drink. So uh, Crystal Light has a fair amount of citrate in it. You would have to drink about two liters to get about 40 milliequivalents, which, you know, in some ways is good because you want to get the fluid into them, um, but not everyone's willing to drink that much. Um, so those are the kind of my choice. I do use the sodium bicarb quite a bit in patients with chronic kidney disease if we're worried about the potassium. So I have a few number of patients like that. Have you started using, uh, we use in our practice potassium bicarbonate now, the 25 milliequivalent tablets, Kalorcon EF or F or K. Is your experience in using those as well? And Brian and Dean as an alternative for potassium citrate? I have used that. I, I've also had issues with them getting that from the pharmacy too. I don't know what your experience has been, but, and sometimes they switch them to potassium chloride. You know, That's I've had that happen. That's I find that problem happening all the time. You put them on Kalorcon EF and they put them on Kalorcon potassium chloride. Completely wrong and you're reading, writing dispensers written and they're still getting the wrong medication from the pharmacy because they don't understand the indication. Dean, you're smiling. Yeah, Same no, I, I, have, I have a number of those patients. Uh, doc, I'm not getting any better with my uric acid stones and they've been on potassium chloride. So, 
uh, you have to really be cognizant of that. Uh, yep. Um, let's see. Um, both Brian and John, um, someone's asking for an end ileostomy or short gut and frequent kidney stones. What do you recommend for home IV fluid therapy? Do you pay patients on that? Maybe John can comment on that for people who have end ileostomies or short gut syndrome. Yeah, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, I don't have to manage that. So that would be managed by the GI group here if we were doing any kind of home fluids. Yeah, Does, do you guys, Dean, do you do anything special for those patients? Uh, you know, I sometimes will consult with who's ever uh, running or managing their IV fluids and to see if they can uh, increase their IV fluids, especially at night. I do have a couple of patients. Yeah. Um, Someone asked, can you comment further on the creatinine level in a 24-hour urine study? John, how do you use that? So, you know, it's typically, it's, it's a wide range. So um, you sometimes you certainly know if it's very over-collected, very under-collected, but it's a pretty wide range, you know, say 10 to 30 milligrams per kilogram often could be correct. Uh, but what's more useful then is if you have serial urines in people, because it really should be pretty similar from collection to collection. Um, so I, I look at that a lot as well. Got it. Yeah. Um, Brian, in pregnant patients with an obstructed infected stone, what is next and when do you do your ureteroscopy? Yeah, so that's a, a really challenging situation. And, um, you know, I, I approach them, um, the pregnant women that we place stents in uh, fairly consistently. And so what we do is we'll place the initial stent, in this case, obviously, to decompress the obstructed infected system treat them uh, with antibiotic therapy until we have you know, essentially um, uh, documented negative cultures. And then usually I change, uh, even in the non-infected patients, uh, pregnant patients, we place a stent, we generally change the stent every four weeks. Same with a nephrostomy. And so if we have uh, this situation where it's a pregnant woman infected, so we place the stent, we treat them typically for you know two weeks antibiotic therapy, get our negative culture. Usually I'll bring them back at four weeks and um, I have the same discussion with uh, all the pregnant women with stents that if uh, anatomically everything is favorable and we can easily access and treat the stone, ureteroscopically we will. If there's anything complex about it such that in my clinical judgment, I, I don't think it's wise to do that, we'll simply replace the stent and we'll either try again in four weeks or if it's a stone burden that's just not amenable to ureteroscopy, you know, we'll consider a percutaneous approach uh, after delivery. Got it. I agree. Um, and then last question, since we are running out of time, this, we'll ask John to see what he does um, and then we'll get your guys' opinion and my opinion. What is your follow-up imaging protocol following ureteroscopy? So John, how often are you recommending imaging studies when you're following the patient rather than the urologist patient? Following them just in general, how often are you imaging patients? And then Brian and Dean, how what is your follow-up following uncomplicated ureteroscopy? So you're talking about in the acute setting or so more? just follow-up. How often do you follow your patients? What is your imaging study of choice in your follow-up of kidney stone patients? Yeah, so we uh, we typically see people every year, um, at least initially, if we're if they're metabolically active. And uh, we really like to get a low-dose um, CT of uh, the kidneys. That's really the easiest way to see what's going on. Because um, like ultrasound is the alternative, but you know, again, those have much less sensitivity specificity. So um, we really like the CT if um, everyone's willing. 
And it right. kind of depends. I, we follow people for a number of years. Uh, you know, often if their stones become less active, they stop coming back and sort of self-select that way. Yeah, that happens too. Brian, what is, what, you have uncomplicated ureteroscopy. What do you image them with? So we'll usually do a uh, renal ultrasound at four weeks. And, um, you know, I think there's two benefits to that. One, obviously, you uh, exclude that there's any post-operative complications, solid hydronephrosis. The reality is I don't know if I've ever found that truly asymptomatic hydronephrosis post-reteroscopy. I think the greater value is it serves as a baseline because our radiologists are really, really good at finding small Randall's plaques and calling them stones. And so, um, you know, that, that we've been up there several weeks before and we know that they're Randall's plaque and not a stone, yet they come out on the report as a stone. So, so we can use that as a baseline to say, okay, just post-intervention, this is what your kidney looks like in about as clean a state as it's going to be in. And then we can follow things going forward to, to define whether there's new stone activity. Okay, perfect. Dean, what do you do? I use, I use renal ultrasonography, and a lot of times we'll get a KUB x-ray just to confirm that the stent is gone, especially if I haven't used a tether, uh, because I've seen some patients, uh, they forget to take their stent, the tether comes off, and you get a retained stent. You might not always see it on an ultrasound. It depends on who's doing the ultrasound, the images they're capturing. But with regards to, you know, as far as metabolically following, I, like John, would probably typically do someone with not a lot of stone activity on a yearly basis. We'll use ultrasound quite frequently and maybe with or without a KUB x-ray. Uh, there are some patients that have very uh, intense stone activity uh, that I might be imaging every three or four months. I have some cystinuric patients that kind of fall into that category, very hard to manage. So it just depends on the patient, but typically at least I see them once a year. Okay, great. Uh, I use ultrasound. Um, for my typical post-op imaging, somewhere between four weeks and three months. And if there's a question on the ultrasound and you're oversized and you don't believe it, then I move on to a KUB or low-dose CT if I think that it's clinically relevant. Otherwise, I just follow up at six to 12 months again, depending on how, how active people are. Okay, great. Great panel. Thank you guys so much for participating. And thank you for everyone for attending. Um, this is always going to be, this is going to be, um, uh, reproduced by the AUA so that this can be watched again in case you missed anything and hopefully other people will attend. And this is the beginning of the webinars for the AUA. So I'll let Sarah speak in a moment, but um, this is the first course. There are many more courses coming throughout the summer on different topics and hopefully you guys will find interesting topics as well. A lot a lot of case-based guideline approach uh, there, topics as well. Okay, thank you guys. <laughs>